came to our local arcades, it was a big deal. It was a fast-moving game that required a lot of skill. That meant a lot of people lurking around the edges, watching, seeing how people played. That also meant that people were much more interested in the game itself, and that sort of fed into itself. And for at least a few months, there was a solid line to play Defender. We didn't get to go to the arcade as often as I wanted to. And like many kids, I'd never got enough quarters to play these games as often as I wanted to. And like most kids, I wanted to be very good at a game. With Defender, they eventually created a port for the Atari 2600, which was the system I had at home. When I got my hands on Defender, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity for me to get really good at the game, and when I go to the arcade, I will be excellent. This is a strategy I have tried to use before in video games, well, as you might have guessed, the Atari 2600 version and the arcade version of Defender are very different. I spent hours playing the Atari 2600 version of Defender and got very good at it. I got very good at it because it's actually a pretty easy game on the Atari 2600, especially compared to the arcade version of the game. I was so young that I couldn't separate the idea that these were two very different games on the surface, they looked similar enough. And so when I went to the arcade at a mall near us and went to play Defender to show everyone how good I had gotten and then played for maybe a minute, maybe two minutes, I couldn't understand what was wrong. I blamed the controls. I blamed the crowd, the glare, everything but the fact that the arcade version of Defender was just much more difficult. Now I've had instances like this happen before and luckily for me, I didn't brag on my Defender skills to my friends before going to the arcade. But there was still this feeling of defeat when I left the arcade. And I recall that even my mother was concerned that I seemed sad or depressed afterwards. Because it was disappointing. Being good at Defender was a badge of honor. And here I was spending my time and hours practicing to earn that badge. And it really didn't prepare me for anything. Being good at the home version, as it turned out, wasn't all that impressive to anyone around me. I still loved the home version, and I very much enjoyed trying to get good at the arcade version. It has left me with a lifelong appreciation for the game. So on today's show, I'd like to talk to you about that game, Defender. We'll talk about the people and company who created it. We'll talk about the game itself, how to play. We'll talk about its sequels, its ports, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Earth's friendship signals, beamed into deep space and beyond the Milky Way, have attracted extraterrestrial beings all right, but not the ones we expected. Now wave after wave of warlike aliens from some unidentified solar system home in and attack. In the cockpit of Universal Spaceship Defender, you await tensely, watching your scanner for approaching aliens. There they are. First comes a lone bomber laying space mines. You pick that off with your laser missiles with no trouble. But an innocent-looking pod ship explodes when you hit it, releasing clusters of missile-splitting swarmers. Phew, that was close. Now what? Your scanner shows a convoy of saucer-shaped baiters coming fast and escorting a squadron of landers. Space intelligence has informed you that the lander's diabolical mission is to kidnap Earth's humanoids and transform them into hideous flying mutants programmed to destroy the cities and take over the Earth. In the city below, humanoids run helter-skelter through the streets like frightened ants. Some cower in doorways, hoping, no doubt, that the landers will overlook them. No chance. Look! See that terrified humanoid wriggling helplessly in the force of the lander beam? No time to lose. Thrust out and blast that lander with your laser missiles. There. That got him. Now dive down and catch the humanoid. Hurry, hurry, he's falling fast. That is the game description from the Atari 2600 version of Defender, and I think pretty much captures the energy of the game itself. Podcast over. Thanks for listening to the show. Of course, that's a slightly different game than the original game, Defender which was released by Williams Electronics in 1981. It is a shooter that scrolls horizontally. In it, you just need to defeat wave after wave of invading space aliens and protect people from being abducted. The video game was made by Williams. Williams is currently called WMS Industries, and they still make electronic games and amusements. They were preceded by the Williams Manufacturing Company, which was founded in 1943 by Harry E. Williams. But the company that would become Williams Electronics, which is the real predecessor to WMS Industries, was founded in 1974. Williams had originally created the company to manufacture pinball machines. In 1964, the company acquired jukebox manufacturer Seberg. This led to internal reorganization. And then in 1973, the company made the leap into coin-operated video games with a clone of the popular video game Pong called Paddleball. They would go on to make several other pretty high-profile games, starting in 1980 with the video game Defender. That would be followed by its sequel in 1981, Stargate, and then other memorable titles would follow, like Robotron 2084, Sinistar, and Joust. Defender would be Williams Electronics' first attempt at a brand new video game, not just some Pong clone. They were seeing the writing on the wall in the late 70s, and they asked one of their successful pinball developers, Eugene Jarvis, to head development of a video game. Because the company had never made a video game before and wasn't familiar with the technology involved, they were given a great amount of creative freedom in the development of Defender. Eugene Peyton Jarvis is a designer and programmer known for his work on pinball machines and video games. Probably his biggest hits or at least the ones that were the most groundbreaking, were Defender and Robotron 2084. He would also work on the Cruisin series of driving games for Midway in the 1990s. He would go on to found his own company, VidKids, which was a video game development company. He wanted to experiment with virtual reality, but VR headsets were not really catching on at the time. While doing so, he did see the potential of 
multi-screen simulators, something you would sit in and see around. And he would help to create hardware that ended up being used in those Cruisin' series games. So one opportunity begot another. Larry DeMar, who often goes by LED, is also a video game and pinball designer who worked with Jarvis on Defender as a co-designer. He would also work on Robotron 2084. He also worked on some great pinball machines, including High Speed, Black Knight, The Addams Family, The Twilight Zone, and World Cup Soccer. That's a pinball highlight reel right there. In addition to Jarvis and DeMar, two other people who helped program Defender were Sam Dicker and Paul DeSalt. So if you're going to create a video game from scratch, where do you start? In the case of a Pong ripoff, you just look to Pong and you rip it off. But what if you're trying to create something new? How do you approach that? Well, when Jarvis looked around, he started to think of a couple of things. One, what type of games were popular? And two, what could they get away with graphics-wise that could look abstract? And he immediately thought this should be a space game. So then they started looking around and saw that the two most popular space games at the time were Space Invaders and Asteroids. They at first tried to use the game mechanics of Space Invaders, but that went nowhere. And then they shifted to playing around with Asteroids. The problem was that the hardware differences between what they were working on and what Asteroids was was very different. Asteroids was a vector graphic machine that needed a special monitor while Defender was going to be using pixel graphics on a conventional monitor. You will note the difference between those type of graphics when you play. I think the easiest way without getting technical is if you ever see a game like Asteroids where you just see the outline and the game is early enough, it's probably vector graphics. Whereas if it's a completely filled in little pixel of light that shines on the screen building little characters, those are pixel graphics. If you've ever seen Defender versus Asteroids, it becomes very obvious when you look at them. They still liked some of the things about Asteroids. One of them was the wraparound screen, meaning you could fly out one side and come in the other side. And they quickly agreed that it would be very cool if a player could fly off one screen and come in on the other, but would be even cooler is if the screen just went on. Now, this might seem very normal now, but what they were saying was you would have the screen, but the playable area would be much bigger than that screen, much, much bigger, and that you would scroll that screen horizontally. They had played with Space Invaders, but if you rotate Space Invaders 90 degrees, you get a horizontally scrolling game where you could move up and down. Jarvis was actually thinking that the game would only scroll from left to right, but it was a fellow Williams employee, Steve Ritchie, that convinced him that you needed to be able to scroll in either direction, which really opened up this game as a game world. Jarvis just didn't think of gameplay, but he also started to think about the mythology, which is where the name of the game shows up. According to Jarvis, I had this whole justification for why you were there and what you were doing. A lot of games fall short. They just put you there, and all of a sudden, you're beating people up, and you start to wonder, why am I beating these people up? There was actually an old TV show called The Defenders about attorneys back in the 1960s, and I kind of liked that show. You know... If you're defending something, you're being attacked, and you can do whatever you wanted. So it took the idea that you were an aggressor, somebody going out there. Instead, you were defending innocent people, which made the game heroic. The first six months of development were wrapped up in these concepts, but they didn't know what would be next. It's at this point they added the first 
threat to the game, the lander. It was also at this point that instead of flying just through space, they added the idea of a planetscape, something that you would actually be defending, that you could, that you could actually see with your eyes. It's very abstract, but it's there. Things were starting to come to a head. There was this big trade show coming, and they were very far behind. And then, heroically, a new programmer joined their team, a young man named Sam Dicker, and jumped into the programming. At this point, they were able to add video and audio effects. When you have that sort of new energy, it can charge a project and start to bring it together. And Jarvis felt that. At that point, they really shifted the development to what the enemies would be. Those landers that I talked about earlier were given the ability to capture the humans that would be down in the landscape below. Capturing humans would turn them into mutants, and those mutants would turn hostile. So you had to stop them before that happened. This really showed off the rescue and defend element of the game. Bombers were added, who released floating bombs on the screen. Swarmers and pods were added to just attack the spaceship. And then baiters would quickly follow you and collide with your ship, which was to keep you constantly in motion and turn the pace up, make it more frantic. Almost everyone at Williams was chipping in at this point. But even at the night of the trade show, they were still working on it right up until launch. One of the big things they had overlooked was an attract mode. An attract mode is an automated sequence in the game that plays no matter what when you don't have money in the game. It's supposed to pull you in as a person walking by the game. And so the night of the show, they were working on it and got it finished the very next morning. Now, as people started to play the game, they started to learn how difficult it was. And despite the fact that someone like Jarvis could only score a certain amount of points, they didn't let that be the cap. They realized that people would get better at this game and eventually added more levels to the game that repeated this would become important for what would become the competitive gaming aspect of Defender that would catch on much later. Gameplay in the game is pretty straightforward, but challenging. It's a two-dimensional game, side-scrolling. You control a spaceship flying over an unnamed planet, I don't know, as a young person, I always assumed this was Earth. You could fly left or right. The joystick controls your elevation. And there are five buttons that control your horizontal direction and weapons. The object of the game, destroy the alien invaders, protect the astronauts. One of the interesting elements that they have in the game is a mini-map, basically. A scanner at the top of the screen so you can actually see what's ahead of you off-screen. Which was an impressive addition to the video game. They also added two features. Smart Bomb and Hyperspace. Smart Bomb blows everything up and Hyperspace moves you to a different location. Hyperspace is one of those things you should use only if you're about to die. Things have to be pretty crazy and odds are it's only going to buy you a second or two. Still, it's a really neat power. Some tips for dealing with some of the enemies. If you're being chased by baiters, know that they are faster than you. So if you tap your reverse button, they will fly by you and then often you can shoot them pretty easily. Same with swarmers. You can hit reverse as soon as they fly past you and then fly behind them and shoot them. They can't shoot backwards, so it makes it pretty easy. At higher levels, it just becomes much more difficult. And 
you have to do humanoid management as best you can. You can't rescue everyone, and you just got to be good at understanding when and when not to rescue people. The game technical overview. The game has mono sound and pixel graphics on a CRT monitor with a resolution of 292 by 240 pixels. The graphics are handled by a Motorola 6809 central processing unit. The audio is handled by a Motorola 6800 microprocessor. The game has 16 colors, so every pixel on the screen could choose from 16 colors, which at the time seemed an impossibly high amount of colors. Someone once asked me, how is it that high scores are kept when a game is unplugged? I actually didn't know the answer to that, so I looked it up. In Defender, the high score is saved by three AA batteries. So make sure you keep those batteries fresh if you want to keep that high score. There were two styles of arcade cabinet for Defender. You had the standard upright arcade machine, and then you had a cocktail machine. A cocktail machine is a table where you and a partner could sit across from each other and have drinks, maybe even have a snack, and play the game. It's not as comfortable as you think it's going to be, but it's a fun form factor, and it also highlights the fact that this is a two-player game. You don't play at the same time, but you take turns. And technical overview. Despite all the work they did, the game did not set the world on fire at the trade show in 1980. Jarvis speculated that many people who saw the game were intimidated by its seeming complexity. But when the game went into arcades, things changed. People were intrigued, and very quickly lines would form for the game. Lines that I remember seeing at the time. When talking about seeing crowds around the game when it first came out, its first week, Larry DeMar said, Defender made $700 its first week. I have never seen a quarter a play video game make money like that, not before or after Defender. It was the most phenomenal collection anyone had ever seen. And there's a lot of speculation as to why that is. First, the game was hard. It would gobble your money up and have a fast turnover rate. But the game itself, just playing it, if you could see the screen around the crowds, was so flashy, it was an impressive attract mode unto itself. And you wanted to try it. But also, the arcade world was mature enough that a game that people were interested in, that seemed to take them out quickly, seemed challenging and exciting. So people wanted to throw their money into it, prove perhaps that they could last a few seconds more in this very challenging game. Six months after its release, it was one of the top earners in the U.S. video game industry. Magazines at the time called it the most successful game of 1981, and some saying it was a much better game than, say, even Pac-Man. Eventually, worldwide, it would become one of the highest-grossing arcade games ever, earning over $1 billion. One of the more interesting aspects of the development of the game was the fact that the game didn't have an end, and that it was so complex that you could figure out strategies for playing the game to extend how long you could play. And while there would be people who would lose in under a minute, there were people who learned to play this game like it was a marathon, trying to play longer and longer on a single credit. The practice of this is credited to Mario Suarez from Atlantic City, New Jersey, who in 1982 played Defender for over 21 and a half hours. This would just be the beginning. And Defender would become 
the focus of one of Twin Galaxies' first video game contests, where players in 32 cities competed in April of 1982, with Rick Smith being the victor and playing for 38 hours and accumulating over 33 million points. People would discover bugs and turn them into features in the game, allowing them to earn more lives so that they could stop playing and go take a break while those lives were being burned off. All of this made the game much more exciting for people who could start off as an amateur and then work themselves up to an expert. The game was released for the Atari 2600, and everyone had very high expectations for it. It was programmed by Bob Pallaro, with graphics done by Alan Murphy. At an interview at the Atari Compendium, Pallaro said that it took about six months to program these games. Pallaro was able to put in an Easter egg with his own initials in the game. If you collect a humanoid on Wave 25... At scan line 25 on the screen, all the opponents on the screen will change to the initials BP, which were Bob Pilaro's initials, and 25 was his lucky number. So a fun little thing you can do. It takes some time. You might want to watch some videos on how to do it online. A lot of people were disappointed in the game. But remember, this was a port of an arcade machine on a system that was much more limited, but somehow... Defender is more well-remembered by people than, say, the Atari version of Pac-Man, which I also happen to like. But I think it's mostly a press thing. People really focus on Pac-Man and the differences in the graphics, especially, and the pace. Whereas if you look at Defender, it looks pretty good, and it plays pretty good. It's just a lot easier than the arcade version of the game. Atari would redeem themselves with the Atari 5200 version of the game. That version really was able to capture a lot of the great things that the arcade version offered, and they brought Steve Baker in to handle the programming. He had written a version of Defender for the Apple IIe while teaching himself to program. The game is still pretty easy to play, but not because it's easy, but because finally in the 5200, they added a second button. So to use the smart bomb, you just had to hit a button. So it was a much easier thing to escape disaster. Also, because the gameplay requires a lot of movement, the fact that the Atari 5200 controller is non-centering, meaning it doesn't return to the middle, feels quite natural after playing for a little bit. You can actually play the Atari 5200 version with the trackball accessory. I have never tried that. I could see kind of how it would work, but I imagine it would be exhausting having to keep rolling the ball to move in a direction, because Defender is very kinetic. And while it would be exhausting to play, I think it would be fun to watch someone do it. If you have an Atari 5200, I want to say that Defender is one of those must-have games. It's faithful and a lot of fun to play. Defender being as successful as it was, they wanted a sequel. So they went to Damar, who was now at VidKids, and wanted him to create a new game. Since they wanted to move it quickly, Damar suggested that they just create an enhanced version of Defender. and. That is how the video game Stargate came to be. It added new elements and improved the performance of the original game. This is not the only sequel or the only game inspired by it. In 1982, Williams would release a Defender-themed pinball machine, although not many of them have been produced. If you ever get to play one, please do. You might not have that opportunity very often. 
Strike Force was released in 1991 as an update to Defender. It's another machine that is not widely distributed. I read someone who compared Strike Force as an update to Defender in the same way that Smash TV is an update to Robotron 2084. And I think that makes a lot of sense. In 1995, Defender 2000 was released for the Atari Jaguar. It was written by Jeff Minter, who had done the wonderful Tempest 2000. In 1997, Tiger released a handheld Defender. And in 2002, a 3D graphics remake with a third-person point of view was released for the Xbox, PlayStation 2, and GameCube. One game that really stands out as a big hit on home systems that owes a big nod to Defender is Chopper Command, a game where you're rescuing people with your helicopter. It's a great game, and it has a great inspiration. They took the game out of the arcade and off the screen completely when Milton Bradley released a Defender board game. You use cards that will bring different aliens into play, and there's a spinner to determine movement. It's a two-player game. You and another player control Defender ships, and you protect Earth from alien landers who are going to abduct humans and turn them into mutants. So very much of the gameplay, but in board game form. Another leap that Defender made was onto the radio, because Buckner and Garcia might be better known for Pac-Man Fever, or even do the Donkey Kong, but they also made songs about other games, including The Defender, which was the sixth track on their album, aptly called Pac-Man Fever. And while Do the Donkey Kong and Pac-Man Fever are solid songs that got a lot of airplay, The Defender is pretty good, so you should give that a listen. When seeking out an 80s reference to put on screen or just to see in the background of movies and television shows, Defender doesn't always make it into the mix, but it has made the jump into TV and movies. Very popularly in Avengers Infinity War, we see that Groot is playing Defender. We also see it in Ready Player One as a reference. But the legacy of Defender goes beyond reference. It's a game that attracted a certain type of player. It had a depth of complexity that challenged people to look beyond the basic gaming system. And instead of just saying, I'm going to get the high score, it became, how long can I go? How can I play this system? It became about endurance. It became about quick reflexes. It helped to define what we do in modern gaming. So if you have not played Defender in a while and you have the opportunity to play it at an arcade, please do. You can emulate it online. Just search for online emulation. You can play it with your keyboard. It's a little clunky. Or if you have an old system like an Atari 2600 or an Atari 5200, you should unpack it and play Defender. It's a great game. It'll test your reflexes, and it'll bring you a whole lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at twitter.com retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you're interested in what Peachy is up to, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Peachy. Pixel 8. That's the word peachy, the word pixel, and the number 8. Just look for the Welsh flag. The Retroist is on Patreon. If you'd like to help support the show and unlock some fun bonuses for yourself, you can drop by the site and see the link to Patreon, or you can go straight to Patreon at patreon.com retroist. I'd like to thank new members who've come in to support the show. 
Harold Bressler, Heather Spohn, Gerald Lang, Adam LaChapelle, and Joey Russell. Thanks all of you for joining, and everyone else, I appreciate your continued support. If you can't go to Patreon right now, and you can drop by wherever you listen to the show and review it, that'll help other people find it, and I would really appreciate it. If you love Defender and you love old video games, you should really check out The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen L. Kent. It was a book released in 2001, has a lot of great interviews and information about classic video games. I find it very inspiring and very useful when I'm doing these shows. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. I remember somebody being so rough with it that when they pulled on the joystick, all the people had put their quarters up against the screen. They had slipped into the cabinet. And what do you do at that point? This has been a retro production. Goodbye.